a break in our series on questions from God as we think this morning on the wisdom of God. Endeavoring to unravel the mysteries of the universe would be less mentally exhausting than trying to fathom the ruinous power of sin. Sin is a lightning bolt on a clear day, a swift, unexpected moment when the arch enemy of man ensnares the mind and drives it into the dark world of fleshly lust. Sin is a verbal expression of parental anger that journeys through the arteries of a child's heart and form emotional scars in the soul that the passing of time cannot expunge. Sin is the loss of trust in the heart of a mate by the entrance of a third party, severing the golden strands of love that once bound two hearts in their own private Eden of enchantment. Sin is the heart of a parent sobbing with unrelenting grief over a child birthed in the beauty of innocence who has expressed the maturity of age by claiming the world as the object of its affection. Sin's cure is divine blood. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Revelation 1.5 Obeying the gospel enables man to contact the blood of Christ. The gospel is a manifestation of the wisdom of God. There are two sources that generate two contrasting kinds of wisdom. There is wisdom that flows from the mind of man that is earthly, sensual, devilish, and fosters envy, strife, confusion, and every evil work. James 3, 15 and 16. And there is wisdom that emanates from the mind of God that is pure, then peaceable, gentle and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits. James 3, 17. The Bible is saturated with grotesque monuments to the envy, strife, division, and works of evil constructed by man's wisdom. Eve erected the first monolith to sin's evil work when she supplanted God's wisdom with her own in an effort to be God herself. Genesis 3, 5, and 6. The length of the shadow of that initial monument to human wisdom and its evil fruit is immeasurable and unfathomable. The world of Noah's day is a classic portrait of the heinous harvest that is produced when man totally rejects the wisdom of God and replaces it with his own. His heart reaches the point where it is wholly devoted to evil and is incapable of pondering a single good thought, Genesis 6, 5. It corrupts the earth and fills it with violence, Genesis 6, 11. The people who lived during the period of the judges experienced six major periods of oppression and endured a century of pagan tyrannical rule because they made worldly wisdom 
the God of their lives. What did Israel do during the waning days of Samuel? They rejected the rule and wisdom of God and replaced it with their own, 1 Samuel 8. Human wisdom cannot bear the distinctiveness that characterizes divine wisdom. It wants to blend in with its environment. The scepter of worldly wisdom was the predominant force during the rule of the kings, making strife, confusion, and every evil work the prevailing mode of national life. What did Jeroboam do upon assuming the throne of Israel? Driven by human wisdom, he completely altered the pattern of worship that God had given to the nation of Israel. He changed the object of worship from God to two calves of gold. The place of worship from Jerusalem to Dan and Bethel. He changed the access of worship from the tribe of Levi to various other tribes and the time of worship for the Feast of Tabernacles from the seventh to the eighth month. Regarding the fourth change, inspiration utilizes a statement that describes the whole of Jeroboam's evil work. Even in the month which he had devised in his own heart. 1 Kings 12, 33. Jeroboam's action was so spiritually egregious that it undermined the spiritual life of the northern kingdom and was the ultimate cause of the nation's destruction. At the outset of Jeroboam's reign, God told his wife that he would give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam who did sin and made Israel to sin. 1 Kings 14, 16. Such is the result, the inevitable result of pursuing worldly, man-made, thought-up, devised wisdom. Solomon asserted that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of both knowledge and wisdom. Proverbs 1, 7, 9, 10. The pursuit and possession of real knowledge and wisdom commences and grows in a mental environment of deep, trembling reverence for God. God instructed Abraham to leave his country his kindred, and his father's house, and proceed to a land yet to be named. A man motivated by human wisdom would have raised a mass of questions concerning God's decree and then waited for a reply. But Abraham's faith obeyed, and he went out not knowing whether he went. Hebrews 11, 8. He was later ordered to offer Isaac for a burnt offering. This divine imperative was the antithesis of worldly wisdom. It took all the faith Abraham possessed to reject the wisdom of his own mind and yield to the wisdom of God, believing that God would raise Isaac, his son, from the dead. Hebrews eleven seventeen. God informed Israel that he was going to pass through Egypt during the night and kill the firstborn in every house. In order to escape this act of judgment, the blood of a perfect lamb in the first year of its life would have to be placed on the side and upper doorpost of each house. Guided by his own wisdom, man would view painting animal blood on a door to avoid death as an ultimate act of foolishness. But Moses and Israel's faith submitted to the wisdom of God. The spirit of liberalism pays homage to its own wisdom. It delights in mocking the wisdom of God, demeaning the law of God, and circumventing the restraints of God. 
strict adherence to divine law is viewed as legalism and human efforts to self-justification. It revels in journeying through the Bible and labeling anything inconsistent with his own thinking as a non-issue. If the spirit of liberalism had been present in the camp of Israel, it would have argued for the divine acceptability of animal blood on the window of the house rather than the doorpost of the house. Wherein lies the difference in preaching and drama, singing and playing, the Lord's Supper on Sundays or Saturdays, male and female leadership, congregational singing and solos, and gopher wood or pine wood in the ark. Liberalism lays claim to much wisdom and spiritual insight into such questions. It views itself incapable of seeing beyond the Word of God into the mind of God and perceiving the nature of God and true spirituality. It derives with a look of pity anyone who would consider such distinctives as matters of faith. Biblical faith that reveres divine wisdom can easily discern the arrogant, self-righteous nature of the loathsome spirit of liberalism. During the period of the wilderness wanderings and immediately following the death of the man who had violated the will of God by gathering sticks on the Sabbath, God issued a decree concerning the outer garment of the people of Israel. They were to make fringes on the four corners of their coats, attaching them with a cord or a ribbon of blue. Those fringes or tassels with their blue cords were to serve as a constant reminder of the commandments of God and as a warning not to pursue the inclinations of their own hearts and ears. Numbers 15, 37 to 40. Yielding to the proclivities of one's own heart is tantamount to prostration at the feet of human wisdom. Remembering the commandments of God is a barrier to the intrusion of man's wisdom that is earthly, sensual, devilish, and advances envy, strife, confusion, and every evil work. James 3, 15 to 16. Pondering and obeying the commandments of God fosters holiness that ye may remember and do all my commandments and be holy unto your God. Number 15, 40. Cords of blue were memorials to the sovereignty of God, the supremacy of the law of God, and expressions of the wisdom of God. Liberalism argues for cords of red. It is an egotistical spirit of conceit. It demands to know the difference in cords of blue and cords of red. That's the thinking of liberalism. And that's the thinking over half the members of the Church of Christ. It views insistence on cords of blue as legalistic and pharisaic. It stares in unbelief at anyone who would make a distinction in colors. Blue cords point to divine laws and commandments. Liberalism sees red at the thought of laws and commandments.
Liberalism's contention for the color of its choice is an act of rebellion against the sovereign rule of God. It exalts human wisdom while exalting divine wisdom. Scorning the principle of cords of blue is an affront to the holiness of God, the justice of God, and the goodness of God. For the commandments of God are holy, just, and pure. Romans 7, 12. It's not much of a leap in a liberal mind to jump from the color of your choice to the church of your choice. Moses and Aaron were dead. Israel had crossed over Jordan and was poised to take the first city in Canaan. Conquering Jericho is a classic example of faith's proper response to the wisdom of God. God's instructions for receiving Jericho as a gift necessitated seven priests with their trumpets and the men of war encompassing the city once a day for six days and seven times on the seventh day. That was divine wisdom at work. Finally, the priests were to sound a long trumpet blast and Israel's was to shout and at the conclusion of the day's march, the walls were to fall down. Joshua 6, 1 to 5. Israel's faith marched to the tune of divine wisdom and by that faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. Hebrews 11 verse 30. There are lessons to be learned from past demonstrations of God's wisdom. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Romans 15 4. But liberalism, boasting of superior knowledge of the wisdom and ways of God, lacks the capacity to learn anything. It demands the role of instructor. That's the spirit of liberalism. While loathing the position of student. They want to stand up with the scepter of rule and authority. I'm the professor, you are the student. Liberalism loves that kind of thing. It insists on being heard and refuses to be taught. It struts about an unturage in tow gushing over its perpetual stream of worldly wisdom. Liberalism contends for eight priests and trumpets and two marches on the six consecutive days. It is wholly blind to the difference in seven and eight and one and two. Debating the variations in one number is a matter of extreme foolishness to the mind of liberalism. It lacks the ability to cope with what it views as matters of total indifference. God's seven and one are manifestations of God's sovereignty and God's right to tell man what to do. It is grace instructing faith how to honor the wisdom of God by complying with the demands of God in order to receive the gifts of God. Liberalism's self-willed disposition nullifies both grace and faith and is an expression of contempt for the wisdom of God. Israel had languished for seven years under the oppressive hand of the Midianites. And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites and the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. Judges 6, 6. 
Following an often repeated formula, God's initial reaction was to commission a prophet to contrast his goodness with Israel's gratitude and rebellion. The prophet reminded Israel of their deliverance from Egypt, victory over their enemies, and the gift of Canaan, and then pointed to their response to God's goodness. But ye have not obeyed my voice. Judges 16. God charged Gideon with the responsibility of leading Israel against Midian and gave him four signs to fortify his faith. Two tests involving fear and vigilance reduced the original number of 32,000 soldiers to a mere 300. Trumpets, pitchers, and lamps in the hands of 300 men were ordered to engage an enemy so numerous they were like grasshoppers for a multitude, Judges 7, 12. Gideon and his small band of soldiers were granted a great victory because they possessed a faith. Oh, how we need this kind of faith in the church today that honored the wisdom of God. Benadad, king of Syria, and 32 vassal armies allied with him arrayed themselves against Ahab and Israel. God manifested his sovereignty, goodness, and mercy by assuring Ahab that he would grant Israel a great victory over her enemies. Following this conquest, the Syrians boasted of the superiority of their gods over the God of Israel in combat in the plain as opposed to the hills. Let's get those folks in the hills and we'll show them who's boss was their attitude. To provide evidence of the singularity of his divine being and sovereignty over all creation, God promised Ahab a second victory over the Syrians. Subsequent to this triumphant gift over Israel's foes, Ahab spared Benadad, the king of Syria, his enemy, befriended him, called him his brother, and made a covenant with him. God's plan for informing Ahab of his transgression and the judgment to befall him involved an unusual request by one of his prophets. This prophet approached one of his neighbors, perhaps a fellow prophet, and by the authority of God declared, Smite me, I pray thee. And the man refused to smite him. 1 Kings 20, 35. Human wisdom cries... My hand will never beat, bruise, or bloody a prophet of God. Perhaps that's what he thought. Surely this kind of reasoning resided in this man's heart in his refusal to submit to a clear command of God. As a consequence of his sin, he was apprised that he would die for his defiance. And as soon as he was departed from him, a lion found him and slew him. 1 Kings 20, 36. That's reminiscent, is it not, of one we noted recently, the sad story of the prophet who believed a lie and was killed by a lion before he could reach the safety of his home. He lost his faith and life at the altar of human wisdom. 
Jeremiah preached to the southern kingdom of Judah for four decades preceding the Babylonian captivity. God warned him at the beginning of his work that his life would be a perpetual battle against the leaders, priests, and people of Judah. During the course of his ministry, Jeremiah was instructed by God to make a yoke and place it upon his neck to symbolize the approaching subservient status to Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon that characterized Judah and the surrounding nations, Jeremiah 27, 2-8. Man's wisdom asserts Yokes are made for oxen, not men. Driven by human wisdom, Jeremiah could have refused to wear the yoke and be a public spectacle and object of ridicule in Judah. Wearing the yoke was a demonstration of Jeremiah's faith yielding to the wisdom of God. Hananiah, a false prophet, broke the yoke of Jeremiah's neck in an effort to sustain his prophecy that God would end the Babylonian captivity in two years. Jeremiah affirmed, this year thou shalt die because thou hast taught rebellion against the Lord. Jeremiah 28, 16. And two months later, Hananiah died. Accepting or interfering with the wisdom of God is a life or death matter. If you are prone to think, as I am confident you are not, that children around the age of two or three don't get much out of a service like this. I don't know that we ever thought that. But around 40 years ago, I was preaching a sermon on Jeremiah's yoke in Thompson, Georgia. Jason was about three years old. I'm sure like most children that age, he was doing something else while I was preaching. I believe it was a couple of days later when he was sitting in my study playing as I was studying. My study was in the house at that time. He just out of the blue spoke up and said, Daddy, tell me some more about Jeremiah's yoke. Ezekiel was one of 10,000 captives to be transported to Babylon during the reign of Jehoiakim, the 18th king to rule over Judah. In the fifth year of his captivity, God commissioned him to preach to the yet rebellious captives in Babylon and press upon their minds that they were suffering for their sins and that Jerusalem and the temple were going to be destroyed. As a part of his work, God instructed Ezekiel to draw a picture of Jerusalem on a piece of tile and then construct various objects as towers, mounds of soil, camps of soldiers, and battering rams that an army could use in attacking the city. Ezekiel 4, 1-3. These actions symbolize the army of Babylon that would besiege and destroy Jerusalem. Human wisdom would have viewed these activities as child's play. I played like that as a child, and just about all little boys play that way. While girls are playing with their dolls, and rightly so, little boys are building forts with soldiers, just like Ezekiel did. But Ezekiel's faith was an obedient faith that honored the wisdom of God. During the brief years of his earthly reign, Jesus encountered a man who had been born blind, laboring under the false philosophy that every difficulty of life is attached to a specific sin. The disciples inquired of Christ as to whether sin on the part of the man or his parents had brought about 
sin on his part. Jesus asserted the innocence of both, the parents and the son, regarding the responsibility for the son's tragic state and used the man's blindness as a means of demonstrating the mighty works of God. He then proceeded to take advantage of the teaching moment to demonstrate the mighty works of God through miraculous healing of his blindness, having placed on the man's eyes some moist clay formed from his own spit. Jesus ordered the man to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Human wisdom would have declared, I see no connection between washing in the pool of Siloam and the reception of my sight. The wisdom of man would have left him in a state of blindness. Placing his faith in the wisdom of God, he went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing John 9, 7. The eyes of the man are illuminated with the marvelous wonders of the wisdom of God when love for God and truth reigns supreme in the heart. Paul paints a vivid portrait of the wonder and power of divine wisdom and the foolishness and weakness of man's wisdom in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17 to 31. If man could find God by the exercise of his own wisdom, he would glory in his achievement. But God has so designed his creation that no flesh should glory in his sight. 1 Corinthians 1, 29. The cross is the greatest manifestation of God's love, grace, mercy, goodness toward man, and yet the wisdom of man considers the cross an act of foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1.18. Catholicism, Islam, denominationalism, oriental mysticism, liberalism, atheism, agnosticism are monuments to human wisdom. They do not understand God, the ways of God, or the truth of God. They stand at the door of a man's mind with a raised sword at the approach of truth. In essence, declaring, don't come one step further. They litter the minds of men with inaneness while claiming to be the fountain source of wisdom. They are enemies of God, foes of grace, and obstructions on the road to Calvary. God will destroy the wisdom of the wise, 1 Corinthians 1, 19, and all who have marched under its banner. That's most men, and that's most women that have ever lived on earth. The glorious church of Christ that Jesus said, I will build, Matthew 16, 18, is a product of the sublime gospel of Christ, Acts 2, and a demonstration of the manifold wisdom of God, Ephesians 3, 10. The singularity of the church with its divine plan of salvation, pattern of worship, organization, and work is God's wisdom on display. Any attempt to dismiss the oneness and exclusiveness of the church is an assault on the wisdom of God. Tampering with God's plan of salvation that enables man to uh, be added to the church and revamping God's pattern of worship for the church that permits man to enjoy spiritual fellowship and intimacy with God is an affront to the wisdom of God. Biblical faith yields unquestioned obedience to the wisdom of God. It is not whimsical. It does not run on the fuel of emotion. It has no interest in what is transpiring in the environment. It is deeply convicted. It refuses to be affected by the thinking and conduct of its religious neighbors. It will not surrender to peer pressure. It cannot be bought. It abhors the spirit of compromise. It will not bow at the feet of academia. It has no fear of standing alone. It is mildly concerned about blue chords, trumpets, pictures, smiting, marching to the melody of God's numbers, the one church, congregational singing, and the Lord's Supper on Sundays. Biblical faith loves and honors the wisdom of God. 
The gospel is a portrait of divine wisdom. The gospel to be obeyed must be faith acting in repentance, confession, and baptism. The wisdom of man affirms that there is no connection between baptism, that has water in it, and salvation. Human wisdom asserts that tying baptism to salvation converts redemption into a work of merit. It aversed that making baptism a requirement for salvation nullifies grace. It declares that, it, that uh, preaching like we do, baptism as necessary to salvation, negates the cross. Baptism is faith tuning its ear to the sound of divine wisdom. It is faith moving in harmony with the melody that heavenly wisdom sings. It is faith quenching its thirst by drinking from the river that flowed from the fountain of the throne of God, obeying the gospel, culminating in baptism, honors the wisdom of God. If you've not done that, we encourage you to do that this morning. If you have and sinned in some public way or you need the prayers of the church, we hope this thinking on divine things has encouraged you to do that while we stand and say. There's danger and death in delaying, except God's saving grace. His life on the cross he has given. Oh, come while yet you may. He's earnestly pleading, oh, make no delay. Tomorrow may be too late. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow may be too late. The judgment day, brother, is coming. Prepare ye for that day. His pardon and mercy he offers. Obey while yet you may. He'll save you from sin and bring sweet peace within. Tomorrow may be too late. Today is a day of salvation. Tomorrow may be too late. A home up in heaven is waiting. Oh, make the start today. Repent and confess and be baptized. There is no other way. Give Jesus your life and thus walk in his way. Tomorrow may be too late. Brother Chester, thank you for that lesson. May we all try our best to keep to God's word and his only. If you'll turn with me, number 254, number 254. This will be our closing song, and after this, we'll be led in our closing prayer. 
We'll meet again tonight at five, okay, 5 and the 5.30 and 6 o'clock for worship service. Number 254. Verses 1 and 3. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, and time shall be no more, and the morning breaks eternal, bright and fair, when the saved of earth shall gather over on the other shore, and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. When the roll is called up yonder, 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 I'll be there. Let us labor for the master from the dawn till setting sun. Let us talk of all wondrous love and care. Then when all of life is over and our work on earth is done and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. When the roll is called up yonder, 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 I'll be there.